Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. All right. Live from the so-called gleaming streamlined studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. I am the legendary Burl Bear, co-host and fact checker, Mark C.G. Boyer, producer, Magic Matt Allen. Before we get to our brilliant and talented guest, not only an accomplished advertising person and author, but also is into circus acts. i got to find out what those are. <laughs> it's great potential. A uh, quick shout-out. Uh, thank you to everyone who's uh, buying my latest masterpiece, Stealing Manhattan. Also, uh, Todd Goldberg, my nephew, has a new one out. Uh, Gangsters Never Die. His brother, Lee Goldberg, has a new Eve Ronan mystery out. Both of them going on tour. I'm probably going on tour. Our uh, niece, her cousin, whatever the heck she is, Ariel Bearer, has a new movie out that uh, she wrote and produced called uh, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, <laughs> which is streaming now. I think the whole family should just go on tour together in a big bus, kind of like the Partridge family. Take Sergio Barrera with us also, the composer. We'll take uh, Rachel Rear with us too. We'll adopt her. She's our guest today. Rachel, are you there, miss? I'm here. Hi. There you are. I'm here. You're an yep. enthusiastic, it says, the innovative and enthusiastic copywriter. I like that. Writer, I like the enthusiastic part. Writer, educator, editor, performer, published true crime author. That's how you want to appear. Uh, essayist, poet, and uh, circus acts. Tell us about the circus acts first. <laughs> that, that sounds more impressive when you read it to me than when I read it. Um, that's just amateur stuff. I went to took a, took a flying trapeze class about 12 years ago at a bachelorette party and got hooked um <laughs> yeah that used to be my main my my true love was flying trapeze and then i i uh tore my labrum and my shoulder and oh, wonderful. Those, my flying days are over so now i mostly do ariel hoop or lyra um it, yeah. yeah if you've ever seen it's like the hoop in the air right and I right i've seen that yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's what I do. I, I train about once a week, twice a week. I've performed here and there, but I'm definitely non-traditionally aged, uh, a little older than most, most professional aerialists. So. <laughs> yeah. My thing's like 14 or something. Yeah, they're usually in their 20s, and I am about double that. So. <laughs> oh, we, we won't tell anybody because your your photograph <laughs> looks like you're 19. So. You've aged yeah, well. Yeah, good, good, genetically lucked out, I guess. <laughs> yeah, or a good Photoshop, yeah. one of the two. Either way, you, <laughs> you have a brilliant, a brilliant career, and you're overeducated, which is probably going to be illegal soon, but <laughs> the way things are going. But yeah. congratulations on all your accomplishments. We have tons of questions for you, but in order for... Hey. Our, our audience to understand the questions, they have to understand the subject. And you know it better than we do. And that is how a nice girl such as you wound up being a, a true crime actress and then a true crime author absolutely obsessed with a very personal and significant case. So please tell us. Sure. Um, I was about 14 years old and... 
I was in a lot of different music classes. I was in band. I was in chorus. And the man who actually had begun the music department in our hometown was a man named Jerry Kopchinsky, a Ukrainian refugee who built the music department from the ground up, a really creative, brilliant man. And I had studied with him, and he had conducted me in several orchestras, so I knew him pretty well, and he knew me. And I was 14 in the summer of 1991, and his daughter, Stephanie, who was 27 at the time, uh, mysteriously vanished overnight from, from her apartment in Greece, New York. So, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit of that echo, so it's confusing. That's all right. Disregard the echo. Okay. Um, She seemingly vanished overnight from her apartment in Greece, New York. And there there were no suspects. The police sort of focused on the fact that she just maybe vanished of her own volition. That was the story they kind of went with originally. Until a couple of days later, her checkbook showed up as a talk there. And uh, that sort of made them think perhaps foul play had been involved, but they had no, she was missing. So that was 1991. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was 19, and soon after, my mother found uh, Jerry Kopchinski and married him. And about six months after their wedding, Stephanie's bones were discovered by two little boys who were fishing in a shallow creek in upstate New York. Wow. Uh, so that was 1998. So it became officially a homicide. So I was around for the fallout of covering um, her remains. I was at her funeral. You know, the police were around the house because it suddenly became an, an actual homicide case. And I. I think that I always, I think 14 years old is a, is a, the right age to sort of become fixated on this kind of thing. I teach that, and they actually, they're really into true crime. I, 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 I started putting more true crime into my middle school library, and they're really interested in, in it, in what light the genre can shine on human nature, you know. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was just always something I tweeted on. Uh, Obviously very tragic to watch my stepfather who, you know, he had Parkinson's and he deteriorated, deteriorated more quickly after the discovery of his daughter's remains. Oh, God. And I always was really sort of drawn to her story and to her. Uh, everything I heard about her, I just kind of wished I knew her. Um, 2009, I started writing about her and wrote myself into a corner, wasn't really sure what genre I would write, and then put it away. And in the interim, started dating an actor who convinced me that I should act a little bit. And I actually have written an essay about how I accidentally sort of fell into the true crime genre because I started getting cast in TV shows on investigation discovery. And I guess the sort of the confluence of my lifelong fixation on Stephanie plus understanding, oh, there is a genre for this, led me to, you know, realize what it is that I had to write. In now, I, have a, I have a question for you here. Sure. You did a lot of those ID shows, and I've done them also, but I was always doing them as a commentator and not as an actor. Now, I always see these people acting out these stories while, you know, yeah. I'm narrating them. 
And mm-hmm. I said, where do you get these actors, you know, who are in the background? I say, oh, we pick them up and we pay them like 25 bucks or something. Yeah, does not pay well. <laughs> <laughs> or did you get paid at all? Uh, uh, we did, but it was very, really low because those are non-union jobs. So they're right. really looking for actors who are just starting to try to begin their careers because they're not in SAG yet. So they can get away with paying really no wages because they know you just want airtime. So right. Uh, but to me, because I was a full time teacher, it was really more like I was exploring that part of myself, and I, I do still act a little bit. Um, well, at least you don't have a lot of lines, and you, know? you have to you don't have to memorize much dialogue. They do, they just kind of tell you say something like this right before they shoot, and then you sort of wing it as you're shooting. Let's so be it's fun, not though. exactly scripted, so. There you go ahead. Um, I was but, just curious about that. Yeah, no, it was it was definitely an interesting time of my life. Uh, one of my biggest, I guess, biggest roles on ID was on a show called A Crime to Remember. Yeah. Which is all kids era crimes. So, like, it, they, the costume design is really amazing. Um, this one took place, I, I believe, in the late 50s, early 60s in Long Island, so it had a real sort of, like, Gatsby feel to it, or about, I guess, decades later. But, oh, yeah, with the spiral um, staircase and the gorgeous this and all that luxury that stuff. Kind of thing, an Italian princess. Um, it, it was about the it was Truman Capote era when this one took place. So... Um, I just realized true crime is the genre. So I started studying the genre, reading as much as I could. I read Lost Girls by, uh, by Bob Coker about the murdered sex workers on Gilgo, Island, Gilgo Beach in Long Island. I contacted him on Facebook and surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, he lives in Brooklyn and he agreed to meet for coffee and it just sort of kick-started the whole thing. Um, so you became I, I more and more this, obsessed with your... It could be your stepsister's vanishing, the mm-hmm. investigation, the discovery that she was murdered. You kind of take over yeah. your life? It definitely did. I would say starting in 2015 when I began investigating it earnestly, I think I kind of turned into an investigative reporter. Good. Class in memoirist. Way, in some ways, that's good. Yeah, it's definitely, I I want to write more true crime because that aspect of it, delving really deeply into people, you know, into the psychology of the crime itself, learning all the people who are tangentially involved and speaking to them and hearing this multitude of stories from people and multitude of perspectives and sort of... Yep. You know, narrowing it down into one cohesive narrative arc. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yes. Obsessional, really, you know. Um, I can recognize Here's the piece of advice I received. When I wrote my first serious true crime book, which is Murder in the Family, uh, I was riding on a bus. I think we were at uh, BoucherCon or uh, Left Coast Crime or something like that. Oh, BoucherCon, yeah. And Gary C. King, who I always refer to as the king of true crime, <laughs> uh, who since passed away, he found out I was doing that and he said, Burl, he says, got one thing to say. I said, what's that? He says, be prepared to cry a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And he was absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, you can take on a lot of other people's trauma. Yep. I I experienced not only my own tears, but the, a lot of other people cried with, when speaking to me. But also were so, so generous with their stories. And I know that, I, and I say often, I know that it was re-traumatizing for a lot of people who knew Stephanie to speak to me. And I'm eternally grateful for their generosity of spirit and for, you know, people put themselves through that. And a lot of them found it, I, I, I think, uh, cathartic to be able to speak about her. Mm-hmm. Mark has a question um, for you here. Go ahead, Mark. Sure. The I'm microphone isn't working as usual. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Hit it again. Um, <clears throat> I'm wondering... A lot of the authors that we have on have commented they were hoping that their efforts would bring some closure uh, to those around it. Mm-hmm. And um, what's your thoughts on, on that? I'm always so grateful when somebody says the word closure because I became very philosophical about that concept while I was writing the book. Uh, I don't think that I personally believe in closure. I don't think there's such a thing, if that makes any sense. I think it's illusory and something we're often chasing after, but we, I think it's ultimately impossible to achieve. I think Um, you may be absolutely correct. You know, that said, I do know that it was, like I said, rewarding for some people who were involved. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of a college friend of hers who was really scarred and traumatized by this experience of losing his friend. He said it really sort of destroyed his faith in humanity to, to learn what had happened to her. And he was, he was initially afraid to read, to read my book, even though he contributed greatly to it. And then he wrote to me and thanked me and said that he felt that Stephanie was safe with me and that I did right by her and that, you know, it was, I don't know, it was just really, there are people who, for whom I hope it brought some feeling of closure, but for me, it actually led me to sort of let go of the need for closure. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, to me, it does. Uh, I can ask Mark a question here. You've had a very traumatic situation in your life where you lost someone. Uh, but uh, yeah. just uh, well, you got to just change microphones completely because I think he's. Uh, yeah, right. everyone I chose. Yeah, here, this is a trend on this show. Yeah. Um, no, I've never gotten closure. I still, I still carry the the pain of those I've lost. Yeah, and um, I mean, I think that closure may give you a feeling of maybe it's the feeling of okay, I understand to a certain degree how this happened, you know, uh, how it fits in the scheme of my life or their life or whatever. But it's not like an episode of a TV show where there's, you know, <laughs> there's that episode has ended. Now here's the episode for next week. Well, there's yeah. there's a, there's also a, an alternate case in, uh, that you can think of where you don't know what happened to the 
person. And then eventually, okay, they find the body, they know they were murdered, and so there's, you no longer are hoping that the person right. will come back. Yeah, that's what happened for my stepfather. He, as soon as her remains were found, he was finished. He yeah. didn't want to figure out who had done it. He, you know, there was, there was a person of interest for a long time, and he had no investment in figuring out if that person had really done it or not. He just said nothing's going to bring her back. So, you know, my mother and I were different. We were like, well, what if this person's still out there? What if they do it to someone else? Right. You know, but for him, he was, he, he actually said that there was a quote in a, in a newspaper. He said he had been emotionally bleeding the whole time. And it was as though the bleeding had stopped once they found her. Yeah. So in that case, that's, that's a certain type of closure. Yeah, but by then he was so weak and anemic, shall we say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wasn't doing well by that point. And it just got worse. He died 11 years later. Um, but I did, it's, I talk about closure a lot. I talked about it at my book launch. I got really excited. I was like, please, everybody here, stop believing in closure. It's liberating, I think, to let go of that and to embrace the constant uncertainty of the universe, you know? Like, it's liberating to me. Um, I read a quote that was like, just the other day I read this quote that was like, grief isn't something that ends, it's something you carry. Yeah. That I thought was kind of apropos. Go ahead, Mark, another question for us? Yeah, the name, the name, catch, catch the Sparrow. What does that mm -hmm. have to do with your sister? Um, she loved birds. And I knew that birds would be a motif in my book all along. She had a cockatiel named Chuby that she loved very much. And she was a, she was a violin teacher, a string teacher like her dad. And one thing she used to do is bring her bird to school and kind of use him to teach the kids how to play the violin. She would say, make sure there's enough room for Chuby to get under your fingers. And he would, he would balance on their bows and he, she would let, let kids play with the birds sitting on their bow. Um, the original title of my book was Bird on a Bow. So I always knew that birds would be involved. Uh, Catch the Star is a quote from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. I'm sure you're familiar with that, that song, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Yeah. Well, we'll have to check. Do we know a disc jockey? Yeah, I think it's about two of them in a room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So that's a lyric from Sweet Judy Blue Eyes, and the line is, how, how can we catch the sparrow? Yeah. So for me, it actually, you know what, it goes full circle back to our, like our talking about closure. That song has that line has always brought me to tears whenever I hear that song because the answer is you, you can't. Yeah. You know, so for me, how can you catch the sparrows? It's sort of like impossible quest for something that's eternally elusive. Mm -hmm. And the irony is, is Full Circle is the title of the Birds of Reunion album featuring David Crosby, of course. Yeah. I never heard of it. No, I mean, these jockeys know all sorts of things. <laughs> well, I know they were information. That's not. Yeah, we're but, gonna get yeah, you a so, new microphone. So I, I love that song, and I just, I felt like 
what am I trying to do? I ask myself a lot throughout the book, why am I even writing this? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure that, you know, by the end of it, I'm not sure if I even have the answer. Well, what, what, why. Yeah. what surprised you the most doing the research? What surprised me? Uh, yeah. Um, I know the answer to this, and it's, it's pretty dark, but it's everything I learned about the man who killed her and everything that I learned about criminal psychopaths. Uh, you found I just out feel you like I haven't. I feel like I have a new understanding of criminal psychopathy. That where before I might have said he, he was a monster, um, but I've come to force myself to accept that psychopaths are humans. They're 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 a part of the human. You know, they're part of human nature. They're part of humanity. They're not an aberration. I mean, they are in as much as they are not the average person, but they are an extension of what yeah. a human can be. Yeah, there are two ways to become a psychopath. One is to be born, shall we say, as Dr. Harris said, missing the emotion ship, or you can be made one by uh, episodes of abuse coupled with head injury. Yeah, that's right. And, it's like a, there's like a trio of things yeah. that is like the marker of a psychopath or something. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I read a lot about it. And, and, and the man who killed Stephanie had a childhood none of us would want. That doesn't... Yeah, it's difficult because you could have two people who have both have the same miserable childhood. Yeah. Both beaten to a pulp by uncaring parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, both having head injuries. One is a pillar of the community, doesn't do anything wrong, and the other one is totally screwed up. That's uh, right. It could, they're still individuals, you know. Uh, we're not cooking. I, 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 I think I've been thinking about... Um the way we deal with psychopaths in the justice system. Yeah. And I think there's probably a better way. There must be. Because it says you can get to a sociopath to not do bad things. If you get to them prior to the age of 14 and explain to them that they will be a lot happier if they don't do those things. There is a website, you know, for sociopaths, run by sociopaths. Oh, wow. And I was on there one time. They gave one of my books a bad review, a short story I wrote, a bad review, because they felt it was an inaccurate portrayal. This is okay, I guess. I wonder if my book's on there. <laughs> uh, anyway, this one sociopath said, I don't do all the things that sociopaths do that are bad. Because the only person I care about is me. <laughs> and if I do those things, my life will be miserable because I'll either go to jail, you know, or, what? or you know, all these bad things will happen to me. So I don't do them because I care about me more than anybody else. So I don't want to be miserable. So I don't treat people that way. Which is- well, that's exactly why... Her killer eventually confessed because there was something in it for him. Yeah. He wasn't doing it out of guilt or remorse. It was no. completely self-serving. Yeah. Yeah, he wanted to be um, buried outside of the uh, the grounds of the prison. That's right. Better for his reputation. <laughs> well, yeah. What was the hardest part of the book to write? 
What was the hardest part of writing the book you wanted to ask? The hardest part of writing. Writing? <laughs> what, the uh, long answer? The whole thing, no. <laughs> uh, making myself sit down to do it, no. It's, I, I actually was quite committed. The section in the book that's about the corruption of the police department in Greece, Ooh, New York. I bet they love that. A lot of people were very, very forthcoming about it because it's a new regime of cops that are there now. Oh. Um, and um, Stan Chizik, who's my friend now, who actually is the one who solved my stepsister's murder, uh, was kind of, he was there during the corruption and then he stayed afterwards. So he saw both sort of systems and he was able to comment on the difference. Essentially, what what led to Stephanie's case being reopened in 2009 was this corruption. So it was, I don't want to say it's serendipitous, but the way things sort of fatefully unfolded, the police chief of Greece, New York, went to jail in 2009. Wow, what did he do? Yeah, yeah, he went, uh, a lot, there were several things, like, I don't want to say I, I 100% would, I would have to go to my book and say exactly what it was for but he did something wrong apparently <laughs> yeah there, he did there were two police officers that sort of blew everything open one was um, accused of coercing women into sex in ex- like women who were on probation and things like that wheeling and dealing with that accused of that and then the other one was drunken on coke and speeding down the highway and crashed into the car, a car containing a woman who was seven months pregnant and she went into labor and her child has uh, learning disabilities for life. Oh boy. So there was a lot of sort of accusations of covering, covering things up, fudged background checks, Questionable things missing from the property, clerk's office, like all kinds of things like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what happened is I got obsessed with this police department and, and the corruption in the town, and I went down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what had happened because the chief before him wasn't so shiny either. You know, so I found out that there's sort of decades of tension between DAs and police officers and police chiefs and town supervisors and like yeah it becomes endemic it comes embedded in the system a hundred percent I became just sort of bogged down by all the systemic issues and political motivations and wrote way too much it could have been its own book and Stan Chizik would say that to me all the time like this could be its own book, and he was right. So the hardest part was to figure out how do I tell the story of this corrupt police department, but also keep the focus on my stepsister. So eventually what I had to do was sort of weave them. I, I, I looked like, you know, Carrie Matheson in Homeland. I had all these papers on the floor and <laughs> timelines. And, yeah. Yeah. and I had to sort of weave together these multiple timelines of the police department and the work that Dave Connor is an incredible detective who was the initial uh, one of the initial detectives in the case what he was doing you know sort of parallel to all these other things that were going wrong in the department and sort of tell those concurrently 
and that was pretty challenging to figure out how to do and keep it, like, not lose the focus on Stephanie, but also keep it compelling. Yes. It's very challenging. That's the trick. Uh, from the... I'll let you know that the audience who listens to this show, one of their favorite things is when true crime writers talk shop. So we'll talk Mm. shop here for a quick 30 seconds or so. Uh, Another challenging thing is when what would be, shall we say, the climax of the story takes place in the middle of the story. (laughs) So how do you structure it so that it the middle of the story comes towards the end. That's another one that's that I've yeah, especially into. in this case where I knew the end of the story before I started writing. So I had to sort of what I decided to do is emulate the journey that the people involved were on, mm-hmm. as opposed to mine, where I knew the answer before I even started writing the book. They didn't. So instead, it told the story of the experience of the people from 1991 on, you know, or even beyond, before 1991, because I talked a lot about Stephanie's history as well and who she was and how she even ended up in Greece, New York, and the history in her life of um, abuse at the hands of men and, no. how it, and how her life was ended at the hands of a man. Doesn't make men look good if you want to make a you know a wide swath there. You know, someone read my book and said to me, "I feel like I have to be a really good man when I'm around you because of all the terrible men in your book." And I said, "Wait, there's a lot of really great men in my book." <laughs> so I don't, you know, my my book is not not a, a you know misandrist manifesto, but it is going to acknowledge the. The, the the statistics, you know, yeah. but there are excellent, wonderful, beautiful men in my book as well. As you try to find a shelter for battered men, even lightly battered men, and call it Tempura House. <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> you're not going to find it, and it's tragic because there's a lot of them out there. During your, your microphone is dying a horrible death. Yes, it is. During your research, uh, did you stop and start exa- re-examining your life? I did a lot. Yeah. Um, were you attracted to violent men or narcissists? Yeah, and I write about it in the book. I I also have a history of abuse at the hands of men, beginning with my father. You know, my father was. I'm very open about it in the book, but he was um, emotionally, verbally, and physically abusive. Well, that's upsetting. And, yeah. And the, you know, the effects that trauma has on your brain chemistry are very difficult to undo. So yep. those are patterns that I repeated when I was younger that I'm only, you know, I'm in my 40s and I'm not, I'm not completely finished untangling all of that. Stephanie was only 27. I would have, you know, she was cut short right when she was beginning her journey to wellness. She had a boyfriend who's wonderful and gentle. I know him. I've spoken to him. He's still wonderful and gentle. And it's tragic to think about what her life could have become and how she might have like escaped her past. But yeah, all of these things did, I, I, I often talk about feeling like a, a doubling or a twinning with Stephanie 
And when I, um, the more I learned about her history, about her abusive partners, about her father even, um, I realized how much we had in common. And I sort of wondered if I might maybe somehow sub- subconsciously knew that about her, that I would have discovered these things about her. One reason why you became so attracted and tuned into it, because mm-hmm. of the reflection of attributes, qualities, characteristics, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's like dealing with your, some of your own underlying reality and being attracted to the story. Mm-hmm. Which is often the yeah, case. Yes, so I definitely, I definitely did a lot of reflecting on my own uh, propensity towards violent men and angry men. Who also often are like extraordinarily charismatic, or you know, I think there's a crossover sometimes between people who can be really charismatic and fun to be around and energetic, but also could have this dark, darker side. That's why I suggest to be with an actor who can fulfill your need for a a mean, violent person uh, who can fake hitting you. You can you can act. I've told people that have come out of these really abusive relationships. I say, listen, I, uh, if you go out with me, I promise every Tuesday at two o'clock I'll be a son of a bitch. I'll just be a total ass, and you'll get that dose that you need. <laughs> I <laughs> because you'll miss I'm it. done dating actors. I think I think I've dated enough actors in my day. <laughs> I'm good. I'm just like, yeah, I can't tell when yeah. you're acting and when you're real. That's how good I am. <laughs> Uh, well, that's one of the things that I say in my book is that I think what I learned is that it's a lot of times when I would get out of those relationships, I would say, never again. I'm never going to be with someone like that again. And, I'm, and then I would just do it again. Yep. So I think one thing I, I wrote about in the book that a realization I came to is, oh, it might happen again. As opposed to saying, never again, I'll never do that again. Recognizing my own propensity towards it is actually more powerful than, than, than saying, no, it's all in the past and it's over and I'm not going to be that person anymore. Yeah, you won't see it coming if you say that. You'll think yeah, exactly. You're so if I say, oh, no, I know that I'm susceptible to this, so, so therefore I will begin to look for the red flags earlier because I know this is my problem, you know? And I think that's part of uh, my evolution. Yeah. Instead of those, that uh, imprinting or whatever in early mm-hmm. years makes such a difference. It sets up all these patterns uh, and expectations. You can retrain. You can retrain your brain. You can oh, change yeah. the brain chemistry. What do they call it? Neuroplasticity. That's real. Yeah. You could go back and, and totally change your memory of events. Instead of doing one thing, make the memory that you did totally the opposite. <laughs> you could do that in the alpha state. Sure. But neuroplasticity is a fascinating concept. The idea that you could sort of rewire your instincts or your yeah. ways that you've sort of been conditioned. There's a uh, a famous uh, therapist, uh, Bradshaw, uh, and then of course you have the charlatan L. Ron Hubbard, who uh, articulated the same concept uh, called Dianetics in the reactive mind. Bradshaw called them scripts and coming home. Right. Because you always come mm. home to those pre-wired scripts you've built. And you react to those scripts because they are part of your subconscious. Mm. And the whole idea of, of originally of Dianetics was to recognize where those scripts are, what they mean, why they're there, and how to rewrite them. 
there was a, a tremendous amount of common sense in generality that is part of mainstream psychology today that he touched on. Uh, well, oh, no the entire Scientology went off the rails. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Zeno or whatever. No, it's Thetans. You, uh, yes, Thetans w- uh, were cast off into uh, a volcano, and their essence permeates the earth, and everyone has a Thetan in them, and, and Scientology is the quest to get rid of your Thetans. Tougher than Thuckatash. Well, that would be nice. I, if it was, you know, I would buy it if it was a metaphor, but I don't think they mean it metaphorically. No, and I never met a four I didn't like. No. <laughs> I, met, I met an eight I liked. <laughs> oh, that's a different story. A yeah, different story entirely. Uh, so now that you've done that and, and accomplished and realized that you're a complex human being with deeper emotional problems, who's also incredibly <laughs> talented, what do you do next? Uh, well, I'm at a, I'm at a crossroads. Um, I'm in year 23 of my teaching career. I've been teaching middle school. I teach eighth grade English. Uh, it's, the current climate is somewhat unsustainable. I'm sure you know there's massive teacher shortages and teachers leaving in droves. Oh, yeah. What state are you in? New York. Oh, they leave in so, New York. I know they're leaving Florida. Doctors and uh, doctors and educators are leaving Florida. I mean, like it's like a mass exodus, big biggest exodus mm-hmm. since you know since the Hebrews left Egypt. Yeah, no, 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 no comment on Florida, but <laughs> um, yeah, it's really hard. I have two more years until I hit twenty-five years, and at which point I would have secured an unreduced pension when I but I can't collect it until I'm 55 so I'm at this crossroads where I have to decide do I just stick it out for two more years or do I try to leap into another career you know I, I do want to write more true crime um, there are stories coming around in my head but te- teaching is so overwhelming I did, I did take a sabbatical I was lucky enough that I was able to take a sabbatical to, to, to do the bulk of the work on Catch the Sparrow uh, I, I, teaching is so draining it's very hard to write and teach right. at the same time not, not you know um, I'm thinking about yes as you said I, I, I took an ad design class at the School of Visual Arts and I really liked it strangely so maybe I'm ready to well, you write more you write capitalistic urges <laughs> sorry I said you write wonderfully and you also do advertising copy and you're very familiar mm-hmm. with creating uh, campaigns and concepts. Uh, maybe it could be a boutique agency or PR agency. Yeah, I've been, been looking at some of the smaller agencies in New York and trying to figure out how to. I've been taking a lot of freelance work. Um, I just need to figure out, you know, how to how to sort of leapfrog into another career from such a long career in teaching. I think I can do it. Um, but it will take my focus a little bit away from my creative pursuits. Yeah, unless you're offering creative services, as what the uh, the boutique thing is. I'll just warn you: it's incredibly difficult to make money as a true crime writer without another source of income. Yeah, uh, as you probably figured out. <laughs> well, well, it's years between books. Yeah. You know, all you the spend all that time doing the research and mm-hmm. paying for all of the time to do the research, and then you know, who knows if the book will sell or how, mm-hmm. how long it takes. 
I mean, I've been very fortunate. People say, what's your advice to do uh, writers? And I say, simple. Win an Edgar Award on your first book and have your second book be a New York Times bestseller. From there on, you can put it on the cover of all your books, whether they sell or not. <laughs> you know, but of course, there's no way yeah. you could plan that. I was asked uh, Bob Coker, who at Lost Girls, what's it like to be a New York Times bestseller? And he said it has not really changed my life that much. So <laughs> for me, um, you know, I I don't know how you, as a true crime writer, probably selling the TV and film ranks is probably... Well, that would be nice, but I've had... I've had the most lucrative thing you could do. I've had my uh, rights optioned on so many of my books so many times. I haven't seen a movie uh, yet. But, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, the counter, counterfeit resurrection of Phil Champagne never came through. No, that was optioned three times so far. Right. Like two or three years each time around. Yeah, and they decided uh, to make it a chip, a chipmunk, chipmunk uh, instead of a mouse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. When, Joe, that, when that's an inside joke. Uh, one TV producer said, would, would Phil Myers, a true story, would he man, mind if we make these changes? And all the changes were so stereotypical. How about if, if his sister's a private eye? And, you know, it's all these bizarre things. And Phil yeah, just said, it's, like, it's not true crime anymore. Yeah. Phil said, I don't care if they make me a cartoon mouse as long as they write me a check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, would, I mean, I think I would feel more invested if, if, this, were, if this story were turned into... Any sort of you know series or movie, I would I, I think I'd like to be creatively involved if, po- if possible. Well, remember the so writer sensitive. is the lowest rung on the totem pole. So I've heard. <laughs> yeah, in fact, in the recent contract I signed, it said that I do get paid if they make a movie, TV series, documentary, whatever. Uh, as a consultant, I get paid. However, there are absolutely no obligation to pay any attention to me. <laughs> My friend Evan Hughes just sold his book, The Hard Sell, which is, um, I'll, I'll do a little plug for him because I'm so happy for him. I met him at the Tucson Book Festival, and he sold his book for use in the mouth. Um, and they are making a movie or a series. It's about, a, it's connected to the opioid crisis, which I think is a hot topic in true crime right now. Yeah, the, uh, the Michael Keaton TV series that they did, Dope Sick. Yeah, excellent. I haven't watched it yet, but excellent. I will. Excellent, true story too. Uh, very, very good. And yeah, uh, also uh, put in another plug for somebody, and that uh, Dennis McDougal's uh, uh, book, uh, Operation White Rabbit, about the uh, the. Uh, Big LSD, uh, so-called biggest LSD manufacturer, who pre-warned warned the U.S. government of the fentanyl crisis 15 years before it began, predicting wow. it. And, of course, they ignored him. But, I mean, the fact that, that he was in a position to warn them why it was going to happen, how it was going to happen, what to do to help save lives. Well... Well, we had a guest on, Burl, yeah. who was in the middle at the beginning and investigating what was going on in the, the dumping of the fentanyl at places around the country. And essentially, he was blackballed and gotten kicked out of his position yeah. as an uh, investigator. 
Yeah. No, no, no. We don't want you. You know, they're making too much money. Yes. And think about what's the motivation for them to want to prevent or, or not want to prevent an epidemic. You know, why would they want an epidemic to occur? De Niro. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Show me the money. It's the corruption angle. I think that's actually why we met. Evan Hughes and I were on a panel that was about police corrupt, or corruption. Um, the two of us, because that was the, the link between our books that had to do with police corruption. Yeah, we, there was a whole research study, as you probably don't want, prosecutorial misconduct. Mm-hmm. And uh, Los Angeles didn't come out looking too good. Uh, neither did a lot of other places. But uh, the book that uh, Frank Gerardo Jr. and I have been writing now since 2016, shows you how long you do research on some of this stuff, uh, is pretty scary. Uh, deals cut between prosecutor, public defenders. You give me this one, I'll let you have that one. Yep. You know, it's just... So much willing and dealing uh, and not necessarily an interest in the truth or in solving no, things all the all. time. No. It's not about... The uh, thing is that people don't know that prosecutors doesn't mean persecutor. It's, you're supposed to be prosecuting mm-hmm. justice. You're not supposed to pursue a case against someone that you don't believe did it. Or yet every prosecutor that I've ever talked to and had on this show, I asked them, have you been pressured to prosecute someone you believed was innocent? And they all said yes. And I think the reverse is fascinating to me. I think defense attorneys, I, I, I became friendly with defense attorneys during the writing of this book as well, and I find their thought process is fascinating. The, the way that they can... Yeah, the thing is, defense attorneys, we always look at they're defending the law, yes. not the individual. Yes, the defense attorney that I know well says he has an almost mystical belief in, in the jury system. Yeah, that could be a, uh, a misplaced... <laughs> Not necessarily. It could be. Now, you've been on a lot of juries. I've been on a lot of juries, and for the most part, the system does function, although it's very slow and clunky and has issues. Uh, every time I serve, uh, you know, I, you know, I go, okay, so it, it works at, at many levels, and this is this is better than a lot of places in the world. Yeah, well... The- uh, I actually had this, uh, wherever it was, Linwood, Washington or someplace, where the public defender was only there if you were going to plead guilty. <laughs> right. <laughs> if you're going to plead not guilty, there was no one there for you. And I said, why is that? So well, because these people have enough respect for the system to plead guilty. I said, that's not how it's supposed to work. That's really... That was pretty strange. Yeah. yeah, well, speaking of the guilty, why don't you tell us about Edward Larrabee? Um, yeah, that's the man who murdered my stepsister, um, the criminal psychopath who did. And also, you know, you were speaking earlier, I was going to dis- distinguish between criminal psychopaths and non-criminal psychopaths because there's a lot more non-criminal psychopaths than there are criminal ones, and they're all over the place in our lives everywhere we go 
Um, what do the non-criminal was, ones do? Yes, the non-criminal ones. That's what I'm saying. They're everywhere. What do they do? Uh, oh, they're CEOs of companies, and they're boss, and they're just regular people, and power-hungry people who yep. destroy lives in other ways besides literally. Uh, Burl, got an example. <laughs> um, do you remember um, uh, Opus, the cartoon? The, the Sunday cartoon, Opus. It was yeah. uh, that uh, penguin, flat, fake nose. Um, they did a panel, uh, a weekend panel, where uh, Bill Gates' spirit enters Barney. And Barney turns around and starts eating the children. No, <laughs> Bill Gates is a nice guy. <laughs> personal friend of my family. Not as a, not as a corporate leader, no. But but just as a general schmuck. Yeah. yeah so that was, uh, and then the panel, you know, then then uh, Opus excises Bill Gates from Barney. That's that funny. Exorcism. Yeah. That's good. Sounds like a nightmare. <sighs> Sounds like a good movie, though. <laughs> no, but it was just, a, you know, it was just the weekend, you know, whatever, seven, eight pounds. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. So, Larrabee uh, was back in the news recently. I don't know. Well, maybe you do know this, but um, he, well, after he confessed to my stepsister Stephanie's murder, he realized that he could get things in exchange for confessions because, as you said, psychopaths are only interested in themselves. Uh, and he started confessing to a whole bunch of other things, C- crazy things, like the, the double initial murders that happened in Rochester that are unsolved. He said, "Oh, I had something to do with that." Of course. Um, he just he wanted. Did he also shoot Abraham Lincoln in the back of the head? Yeah, it was as as unbelievable as that. So in 1982, there was a woman named Kathy Krausnick who was murdered in Brighton, a town near Rochester, with a single axe blow to the head while she was sleeping. And it was a murder that was well known up there. And when he was dying, after he confessed to killing Stephanie, he con- he called in a Brighton police officer and confessed to killing Kathy Krasnick. Um, he got all the details wrong, and this is in the end of my book too. But he, the positioning of her body, the color of her hair, he claimed he had sexually assaulted her because he, more than anything else, he was a serial rapist. But Kathy Krasnick had not been sexually assaulted. And to me, you know, when I was on Dateline in 48 Hours, they asked me repeatedly if I thought there was any chance at all that Larrabee had killed Kathy Krasnick, and I don't think, I don't think so. Because for him, most of what he enjoyed about torturing women was the actual reaction of the women, the humiliation, the degradation, that was what he liked. And it got all tied up with his mother, and he chose women that looked like his mother, things like that. Apparently he and mom didn't get along. Not at all. No, you could say that. She did things like beat him and lock him in a cellar that was filled with rats and bugs. I mean, that's according to him, though, so who knows? Well, a boy's best friend is his mother. Norman. Like just like Norman Bates, right? Yeah, so I said that's Norman Bates said that. Yeah. So, um, he confessed to this other murder that he didn't commit, and I, I guess finally, that was 1982, they finally, finally put the, the husband on 
We indicted the husband in 2019, and the child has happened in the fall. So, of course, the defense is going to use Larrabee's false, in my opinion, false confession to sow seeds of reasonable doubt for the jury. Um, uh, I guess, apparently, they they didn't buy it either. Um, And uh, Krasnick was convicted of his wife's murder. 40 years after it happened. Yeah, well, there's no statute of limitations on murder. That's right. Yeah. No. So years he's on bank going robbery. to jail. You know, this guy, he's going to jail. He raised his daughter for the last 40 years. She firmly believed her father did not kill her mother. And I guess the jury just couldn't think of another explanation when it all boiled down to it. They just, it was the only believable explanation was that he had killed his wife. So, you know, Larrabee's back in the in the news because everyone's like, well, look, there was this serial rapist who was a confessed murderer who lived right down the road from Kathy Krasnick who could have done it. So that's why 48 Hours and Dateline reached out to me. It just was a coincidence that my book came out the same year that the Krasnick mm-hmm. case was back in the limelight. Yeah, it's just not consistent uh, with his... Modus operandi, or uh, whatever they call it. Yeah, it didn't really. Yeah, it did not fit his MO at all. Um, and and yeah, yeah. that's another. That's another story that's entirely tragic. The Krasnick story. So, is there any uh, any thoughts that his, that his confession about your sister's murder being uh, false? No, I uh, no I. Of interest in her case since 1992, uh, after the violent rape of a neighbor of hers who lived across the parking lot from where her apartment was, he became a suspect in that assault. And then that's when the police were like, "Oh, wait, maybe it has something to do with Stephanie Kopchinski," because he wasn't even on their radar concerning Stephanie for over a year. Huh. Mm-hmm. For about a year, um, they were fixated on her boyfriend at the time, on the possibility that she just took off. Yeah, that's and always a convenient explanation. Oh, she ran away this, from home, or he ran this away. This was before there was a, a, a sex offender registry. It was 1991. I think the Jacob Letterling Act was 94. I think so. There was no way to look, when when he applied to the job, you know, he just lied on his application. They said, have you ever been convicted of a crime? He just wrote no. And the guy who hired him just hired him. Yep. And someone else, uh, he was hired as a maintenance worker in her apartment complex. There was another guy who had just been fired who said, don't hire that guy, you're going to regret it. And they didn't listen. Yeah, there was a, a acquaintance of mine who was trying to avoid being anywhere near uh, this one particular fellow. And what he did is he got the job as the maintenance guy in her apartment building. Yeah. <laughs> Very crafty of him. She got a restraining order against him anyway. But she was wound up surprisingly dead uh, not long after, supposedly of a severe COPD attack. Supposedly. Yeah. Well, that's that. Yeah, he had keys. He had keys to every. He had keys to women's apartments. In, in his confession, he said it was like being at a carnival. Oh yeah, 
Very similar. Which is chilling. So throughout this, uh, your investigation, a lot of people, your sister, uh, commented how much alike you uh, are. No, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm, I'm, I'm touched by it. My stepfather himself somewhat conflated us in his later years when he had dementia. Oh, yeah. It was almost like we, we became sort of one entity in his mind. Like, my birthday is Christmas Day, and my mom said to him in the nursing home, do you remember he has a Christmas birthday? And he looked right at me and said, of course, it's Stephanie. Yep. So. And the two became one. The book yeah. is Catch the Sparrow. Rachel Rare, it's fascinating. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, very enjoyable. We'll have you back with the next book. In the next yeah, career. Uh, hopefully sooner than later, too. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're more than welcome. Keep up that circus act. <laughs> uh, I will try, as long as my body lets me. <laughs> okay, thanks again. All right. Thank All right. you. Talk to me.